The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix podcast. Tune in today. and welcome to The Good Citizen. This is a new podcast with a broad remit in which we talk to interesting people who have good ideas about how to make the places we live in better. We'll be focusing quite a bit on architecture and design, but we'll also be talking about culture as well. The podcast is brought to you by Britomart, the nine-block neighbourhood in the heart of downtown waterfront Auckland, where good ideas get hatched. My name is Jeremy Hansen, and it's a pleasure to welcome our first good citizen, Jade Kaki. Kia ora, Jade. Oh, kia ora. Jade Kake knows Māori design principles can change Aotearoa for the better, not only in our housing, but in our towns and cities as well. Jade is the executive producer of the Indigenous Urbanism podcast, in which she roves Aotearoa, talking to Māori designers about housing, urban design, and a whole lot more. She's also appearing with me at the New Zealand Festival of Architecture in a talk on Thursday, September the 20th. Jade, thanks for being here in the spin-off studio today. No, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Your podcast talks about decolonizing through design. I wanted to ask you to begin with, what does a decolonized town or city or home look and feel like to you? Yeah, you know what? I don't think that any of us know what that is just yet. And I'm reminded of um, quite often people ask my opinion on an outcome. And I promise you this isn't a politician's answer, but I usually respond with a process because I think we don't know what the outcome is yet, but I think we do know some of the steps we can take to get there. And so I really think that it's multi-layered and it incorporates so much more than architecture and design. It's also our political systems, our economic systems, our dominant modes of thought, thought our scholarship, our theology. Like there, there are so many layers to decolonization. But I guess in Aotearoa, it comes back to Hefakaputanga, the Declaration of Independence, and then um, Te Triti o Waitangi, which was signed five years later. And so our tupuna understood it at that point in time that this was an agreement between two peoples coming together, but under a Māori kaupapa. And that was how it was understood in that context. So I think sometimes this idea of biculturalism fails to encompass what all the decolonization can be or could be. Um, Lately, I've been having discussions about it, and I've used the Kingdom of Hawaii as an example, because although Hawaii is illegally occupied currently by the United States, was illegally annexed, Prior to annexation, it was actually a constitutional monarchy with citizens who were not native Hawaiians, 
with with trading posts and embassies around the world. Um, and I think that that provides a, a potential model for the future. <laughs> now, I haven't even talked about architecture yet, so I just wanted to kind of broadly think uh, and talk through some more political thoughts on decolonization. But I think it's relevant because if you're not in the correct frame of mind about what decolonization is and could mean, then it's impossible to design in that way. So I think we're at this point in time, maybe we won't get the radical political overhaul that I'm kind of suggesting, but I do think with this process of treaty settlements, we're starting to see um, particularly our post-settlement entities attain economic sovereignty, which I think is the precondition for political sovereignty. And if you look at the likes of, you know, say Waikato Tainui, they have a lot of um, decision-making in their rohe and those partnerships are getting stronger and stronger. So to get to the podcast, um, on the episode on Rangiriri Pa, which came out last week, through that process, Waikato Tainui, NZTA and their partners developed a really robust and solid treaty-based partnership model that's since been rolled out on a lot of other projects. And so the, the relationship's at the right place, the decision-making is at the right place, and that's how you get an outcome like Rangiriri, which hadn't really been done previously. You have a master's in architecture, so that's the field that you're advocating from. Mm. It struck me as I listened to the podcast that your optimism about the change that you've just described is amazing, and I wanted to ask you, how you remain optimistic, given that it must be just as easy to be furious that these principles and these approaches have been ignored for so long. I am so fortunate to be living and working at this point in time where a lot of the really challenging groundwork has been done by our parents, by our great-grandparents, by our grandparents, by all of those previous generations. And we're the generation coming through that's really been able to see change. And I think if you get those wins and they're not too far apart and they keep coming, and yes, you might get some losses in between, but if you get enough wins, then actually uh, it's possible to keep going and to remain optimistic that positive change is possible. So I think it's a luck of timing, perhaps more than anything else. Um, but I know for myself and especially for my peers, we don't take that for granted. We know that we're fortunate that we're empowered to be effective and we know that we're fortunate to be supported by the generations who've gone before us as well. What do you think has changed in recent times that has made the changes that you're documenting in your podcast um, take place and seem to be happening in a really exciting wave? Yeah, I would say um, establishment of the Waitangi Tribunal in 1975 was a real turning point, as well as the other things that were happening in the 1970s, termed the so-called Māori Renaissance. There was a lot of political activity and a lot of political rights for Māori were won at that time. And I think we've really seen exponential and rapid um, growth in that since then. Um, I do think the last five years have been particularly good for architecture and for urban design and for our profession. And again, I think that probably comes back to the treaty settlement context here in Tamaki, in our largest city. So as more and more iwi are achieving settlement and we're pushing for inclusion at the decision-making table and at all steps in the process and getting it, um, we've seen some really uh, foundational changes behind the scenes that we're starting to see as built environment outcomes now. Embarrassingly, in the past, Māori designers generally seemed to be um, perhaps 
somebody developing a big public building, commissioning a Māori artist to hang an artwork in the foyer at the last minute. Mm. What you've been talking about is a much more comprehensive approach. Can you decide, uh, describe what that approach is like in an ideal world? Yeah, I think it comes back to that foundation of a relationship. So if you have the right relationship in place from the beginning, it informs a process, a collaborative process, that will get those outcomes that you desire that are genuine. And so, um, for instance, today I'm part of a Tangata Whenua working group for Mahapu of Te Parafo in Whangarei for um, the town pace and development. So there's a new park that's being developed there next to the Hundavasa Centre. And the council, our council are getting so much better. They're really listening and learning and there's been a real cultural change, which is so positive. And so early in the process, we were invited as Parafo. And so we came as a group and we had our māngai or our spokesperson. We had our cultural knowledge holder. And in this case, we had me as our technical um, kaimahi. And that's a really good formula. It's a good mix to have those different skill sets represented working together. And who else in the room? Well, we had the council landscape architect, council planners, project engineer, um, their comms person. We actually, we had um, their strategic planners. We had a good mixture of people all sitting down in good faith and really willing to listen and to work together. Um, And I know most of our council colleagues actually, they don't, Maybe they don't necessarily have that cultural competence, but they're interested and they're willing and they want to do the right thing. So I think creating spaces where it's safe for people to learn and really engaging in that relationship in good faith. You're working in a profession which historically is prized um, the singular creator, often mm-hmm. a man. Um, you know, one architect is credited as the genius who created an entire building, which has never been true. Mm-hmm. But it also made me think that the culture of architecture probably doesn't favour the sharing of ideas and that perhaps there's been some fear on the part of architects or urban designers that if they consult too much, the power of their idea might be distilled into something that's wishy-washy. How are you kind of, have you encountered those problems and how are you working the design profession through that to let them know that consultation doesn't risk a bad outcome but in fact a better one? Um, yeah, I think that one good way of doing it is the model I just described where you actually have your hapu appointed technical people mm-hmm. alongside the cultural knowledge holders because it means that they can talk the design language, the planning language, work within with those colleagues to give them assurance about the process. And also sometimes, sometimes our knowledge holders they're not they're not architects designers they so they may hold all of those important stories but they may not have the ability to translate those into design outcomes so you're kind of sitting there in the middle being able to speak both languages so I think that's one mechanism that's really useful um I kind of sometimes just think the profession needs to get over itself (laughs) (laughs) like I don't I mean Sorry, that sounded a bit flippant. But um, I do think the work that some of our colleagues from Ngāahu have been doing in terms of upskilling um, like the Auckland Urban Design Panel members and upskilling Auckland Council staff has helped to um, alleviate a lot of that kind of, I guess, fear of that process. And then I think a lot of our large firms, they're doing a lot of this culturally based work. And so they're getting used to the process and forming relationships with mana whenua in the room with the council people and so on. And just for clarity, Ngā'aho is the collective of Māori designers who advocate for more collaborative outcomes in 
all the design professions, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So we're the Society of Māori Design Professionals. So it's a um, it's a group of – it's quite holistic actually because it's not just architects, it's also landscape architects and we often have planners involved, although there's also a Māori planners rōpū and we have – people who do, you know, graphic design and it just kind of, people who do co-design, it just kind of depends where the energy is at that point. So it does tend to have a built environment focus, but not exclusively. One of the major projects that Māori design principles have been incorporated in so far is the stations for Auckland City Railing that are currently Mm -hmm. under development. Can you talk about, I know you haven't been directly involved in that process, but can you talk a bit about that process and what the outcome will look like to somebody who might be using the city rail link stations once they're complete next decade. Yeah, um, so as you mentioned, I haven't been directly involved in that, but it's such an important project because it's really um, probably the key one from which the Te Aranga Māori design principles emerged. And it was through that collaboration with Māori uh, designers and mana whenua working on these council projects that these principles evolved. So... Um, Roe Hoskins was the sort of principal author of those principles through this collaborative process. And I remember I interviewed him on the podcast recently and he mentioned that originally they had four actually, but they just kind of grew over time and they settled on this number of seven. But they've since been kind of um, adapted throughout the country. So seven's not set in stone. Back to CRL, um, I think infrastructure projects are really important because often that might be the first touch point um, and it because they connect all through the city that, that they're thematically linked and you have this network and so they're a really powerful storytelling tool so I don't actually know what those outcomes look like but I know the process has been good and so I think what it will do for people who live here and people who are visiting it will give them a sense of place and it will give them cue, visual cues and references that can anchor them and connect them into the landscape and the culture and the histories of this place. It struck me listening to the podcast that a lot of the design principles you're talking about would also be considered fundamentals of good design in any other cultural context. And I wondered if those principles have been corrupted in you know, the housing market in New Zealand or in bad buildings we see because the profit motive um, where a developer needs to make money out of doing something um, means that good design gets pushed aside for um, you know, expediency in a sense. And it seemed to me that a lot of the iwi projects um, or the hapu projects and the long-term view they were taking meant that that corruption was less likely. That's kind of a multifaceted question. Um, so I guess I'll break it down into little pieces. Do you do you think that the the principles of Maori design um, that you were talking about, Ro advocating for before, um, they relate to design that people in any cultural context can appreciate for the most part? Yeah. Yeah, I th- I think absolutely. I think they form. Well, I think some of those principles form the foundation for culturally based architecture. So. I mean, theoretically, that could apply in a wide range of contexts. Mm. Um, and actually, we've had a lot of interest from colleagues in Seattle and Vancouver and Montreal looking to form their own vision. Um, some of the barriers, though, is that the political and the tribal context is often quite different. So, um, again, because of our treaty settlement context and because of the relationship that was formed with Auckland Council, and I think also in part because of the requirements set by having the Māori independent, independent Māori Statutory Board through the formation of the Super City, all these sort of things came together that meant that this got really a lot of traction. 
Um, whereas in some of these other cities, there's a multiplicity of languages and tribal groups and cult- culture. There may be no treaty. There may be no statutory requirement, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that said, if we're not if we're looking beyond those constraints, I do think um, a version of these principles could be adapted to a wide variety of contexts. Some of these contexts are slightly bureaucratic, and you visit a few housing projects in the podcast where it seemed that in some cases there were quite good ideas to develop papakainga and communal housing and um, other models based on that around the country, but that they were sometimes being stymied by the building code or by local councils applying that code. Mm-hmm. Is it getting easier for hapu groups to break through that now that there are some exemplar developments to follow? Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, it is complex and there's a wide range of barriers. Some of them are just issues of capacity and capability. Um, many of our Māori land blocks don't actually have land management structures over them or they're poorly serviced or they have no legal access and there's just so many things that have been created as problems over time. Um, And a majority of Māori land is also zoned rurally, uh, which means that it might have a limitation of, say, one house per 10 hectares. Um, There's also that back to that governance issue because there might not have been any management structure and then you finally form one and then you actually have to build an entity from scratch and develop things like policies and procedures and good governance and upskill everyone along the way. And then if you start getting into development, well, that's another layer of complexity and you have to have a different set of skills and good advisors and robust structures. And there's a lot. Um, And then uh, I think another really persistent barrier is finance. Um, So for Māori land, there is only one mortgage product available called uh, Kainga Whenua, which is underwritten by Housing New Zealand, theoretically available to any bank, but only offered by Kiwi Bank currently. And you really don't have any alternative unless you have alternative security. And most Māori entities or, you know, Māori landowners will not have any alternative security. It's crazy when you think about how difficult this is, given that many of the hapu have the financial resources to provide potential solutions to the housing crisis in their areas? Um, yeah, there's a, so there's an added layer of complexity because most of the land is in um, Fano or loosely around hapu sort of size, you know, grouping of shareholders, but it's by shareholding. And so sometimes it might be a small family, could just be four siblings, or it could be hundreds of people um, all descended from the same great-great-great-great-grandparent. And it might roughly aligned to hapu but wouldn't actually encompass everybody in that hapu. And so um, we don't actually have most of our land in hapu ownership. And then iwi don't traditionally have land, um, but most of our iwi rauranga were formed through the fisheries settlement process or then later through Treaty of Waitangi settlements. And you might get some land back as part of settlement, but more often than not it's commercial redress to build up that economic base or it might be cultural redress and like co-management of an important natural landscape or a park or, you know, there's so often there's not a lot of land that's returned that's suitable for housing. And if it is, it might get developed commercially um, because there's a lot of pressure to be really careful with how you manage your commercial assets. So you grow them. Um, and I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure I know what the solution is to that. I've got this vision more broadly of, um, being able to return our land to hapu ownership. 
through a kind of governance system that would umbrella all of these whānau land blocks and allow the manner of decision-making to rest with those whānau who were kaitiaki of those blocks, but to have this supporting infrastructure over the top to enable us to kind of collaborate and share resources, share back office functions, especially if we're starting to be developers. And perhaps even um, it could be a place that manages some of the treaty settlement assets. So there's a huge disconnect between settlement assets and the scraps of Māori land that are left and managed by families. In the episode where you talk to Roe Hoskins, you walk around Auckland and you talk about efforts that could be made in the city to make it feel more welcoming to Māori. Does that mean the city currently feels unwelcoming to Māori? It feels really alien. It feels like a colonial space. I I mean, this. I know you're talking about Tamaki, but I walk around my town of Whangarei, all the streets are named after, <laughs> well, I was going to say colonisers, but I suppose if I'm nice, I'll say settlers, but prominent settler families and that were there for a while and then either stayed there or but some some of the people that have, we've named major streets after were like in Whangarei for like 20 years and then you know went back to England or wherever they went or went on to Australia I was reading a report uh, like a historical report that was produced um, for council to inform some of their kind of design work and it was very heavy on, on settler history and I learned a great deal but I was like wait so we named that whole park after that guy that was there for 20 years <laughs> like I just think that's a bit rude <laughs> Um, but again, because um, we're getting invited to the table now and we're able to be involved in naming and cultural narratives, that's starting to shift. But it's quite painful because we remember the events that have happened and remember the people involved in the places where these things happen. And the treatment is often of these places is very disrespectful. Like something we talked today about today even um, around the area where this project is happening you know, it was at Urupa and then settlers came and they just put farms on there and they got told, you can't be doing this. And they were just like, oh, well, too bad, Māoris, you know. And that happened a lot everywhere. You grew up in Australia um, and were born there, I believe, right? Mm. What made you move to New Zealand and how does it feel different um, as a Māori practising architecture? Mm. Yeah, no, that's kind of an interesting story. So I grew up really close with my koro, my my, um, mum's dad, and so he used to bring me home and um, I don't know if I would be the same person or feel the same way about things if we didn't have that relationship and if he didn't feel it was very important that I was grounded and knew where home was so I'd come back and you know little Australian girl but I'd stay with my aunties and they'd be like oh girl you know where home is and I'd be like oh yes auntie like you know don't want to contradict but I'm so you know Um, but I got in to my head and I never actually forgot it and they made sure that I knew where I was from and where I belonged and I just that's always been a really core part of my identity so I don't know I mean I lived in Australia for a long time but I never felt Australian and maybe because being indigenous somewhere else I was really aware of growing up on Bundjalung country and really aware of the kind of like ugly racism and impact of settler colonialism on the local people and I don't pretend to be knowledgeable on Bundjalung culture I'm not but I just really felt uneasy with it and I think that was part of the motivation to move home like I went to the University of Queensland actually for my undergrad and they have this really interesting Aboriginal environments research center and I was like oh I actually really want to be doing architectural work like this but I want to be doing it with my own people (laughs) and maybe I better go back there to figure out what that means or what my contribution could be. You're now doing that kind of work um, near Whangarei Mm. 
um, with your own practice. Can you talk about the projects you're working on there and um, what you're aiming for and how they make you feel as a practitioner? Yeah, um, well, it's, it's been, I've been on a really nice journey, actually, because um, so I stepped away from my work at Tamata Pahi, National Māori Housing Advocate, in early July. And um, I think because it's been a few months now, I'm only just realising how difficult that was to be working really intense workload, very high stress role and travelling constantly. Um, I think because I was so passionate about the kaupapa, I didn't notice the like poor lifestyle until now I'm like living properly again. I'm like, oh, okay, that was not the best Um, in in that way, in that way, although I'm really proud of the work that we did. So for the last few months, I've just been on a kind of process of resetting and refocusing and it's been really great to get back to architecture and back to design as my core focus because now when I get asked to do projects that are um, at home and in the area that interests me, I can say, actually, yes, I can do them, not I'm getting on a plane to Wellington. And so um, I've started up a studio called Matakohe Architecture and Urbanism. So Matakohe is Limestone Island in Whangarei Harbour. And that was the Tupuna Pa site of um, Kukupa and Fitiawa. Sorry, Kukupa and Fitiawa. And that's who everyone from Te Parafo descends from. And our whānau, our kāinga, or our, our village, which is actually where my grandfather was born and raised, is directly across the um, water from from Matakohe. So you can see you what you see it all the time from our whenua. And they used to sort of go over there and go to Mahinga Kai and, and get kai around there. So, um, yeah, and then I was over there actually, like, I think it was last year, and I was looking out, looking at our whenua that I've been working on development plans for and going, wow, you know, I just can't wait for the future when it looks really different because our papa kāinga is re-established there and we're connected in with town and our city, well, our city actually looks like us and these other villages, they they're, they exist again too. And I don't know, it was just kind of a really nice moment for me there. And I just thought when I was thinking of what would be a good um, name, I, I thought of that moment and of that story. Yeah, and so, so I've got a few projects um, on the go at the moment. So we've got two papakainga, um, one at uh, Pihiawari, which is in Glenbervy, um, just past Otuiho, past the falls. And the other one is at Reberewa, which is just south of the port area. And so I've been working with my whānau on both of those projects. And we're just putting in the funding application this week um, to Tupuni Kōkere for project feasibility, which means we'll be able to start design work uh, around December, January. And so by June, July next year, we should be putting in our papakaiing and development plan, which is uh, roughly, it's the same as resource consent stage. But in Whangarei, we don't need resource consent for papakaiing anymore. And then we'll be moving on to the next stage, which will take us through to building consent. So um, one development um, will probably be around 50 homes, but six in the first stage. And the other one will be around 100 homes, but 10 in the first stage. So we've got a really unique and exciting opportunity. And um, it's been a long time coming. Anyone who knows me is like, oh, you've been talking about that for years. I'm like, yeah, but we're making progress. It's just slow, okay? Like one of them didn't have a trust. It took us six years to form a trust, like... Um, but things are moving now. Um, and then also doing some of this cultural landscape work. So I've just joined this Tangata Whenua working group around the town based on cultural narratives. I'd really like for our council to consider developing a cultural landscape strategy across the whole city because they did a city centre um, redevelopment plan, which 
in terms of urban design, it's really good. It reflects international best practice. I, was, I couldn't see anything contentious in the urban design. The problem that I saw is that they articulated that, um, you know, Whangarei needs to have an identity that's distinct, not generic. We need to have a point of difference. But they stopped short of defining what that is and could be. And they didn't, there wasn't really any evidence of Māori involvement in that plan. But the point is they're involving us now in projects and I think as we're developing this working, this good faith working relationship, there'll be an opportunity to develop a, a wider strategy so we're not just doing these little projects in isolation. Taking you back to the papakainga for a moment, how will that um, look or feel different to a conventional Pākehā subdivision? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's the balance of um, private and shared space. So usually you might have clusters of homes, maybe six or eight, that have a relationship to one another, and they could be joined, they could be separate. We're still going to work, have to work through what density feels appropriate for us. Um, and then also you would have communal uh, facilities and communal areas. There's usually no fences, so you use landscape to articulate those boundaries um, and you also need to ensure, I guess, that the way the house is oriented and the way the spaces are oriented, they do promote those um, positive interactions between whānau members and with your manuhiri and all visitors coming. Um, so some other things might be just making sure that the kitchen and living areas overlook a communal play area. So your kids might be running around, but you can still stay in your house and, and, and but see what they're up to. And other things like making sure that the driveways will be to the back and not cutting through play areas or shared areas. I mean, a lot of it seems really common sense. Um, and a lot of the principles are pretty similar to things like co-housing and cooperative housing. But the big thing is the kind of behaviours that they promote. So they promote this kind of way of living where, yes, you still have your private space, but you have good relationships with your, and cohesive relationships with your family members and you're able to work together as a unit um, and I think other exciting opportunities come out the edges like creating spaces where te reo can thrive, creating cultural activities that you can learn together, creating that intergenerational transfer of knowledge because there's different generations living in clo close proximity and then also the relationship with kai, so like mahinga kai and marakai um, and relationship to our environment so things like conservation efforts and replanting natives, increasing biodiversity Something my cousin does a lot of is things like getting kids involved with like monitoring the environment and, and those kind of interventions. So it's just a more holistic thing, I guess. <laughs> it sounds like something that every New Zealand um, subdivision could benefit from. Yeah, I um, actually met up with some... I think actually the big difference between subdivisions is just less divisions. That's right. <laughs> um, but I'm, um, we have Auckland Uni, they have geography students that come up to our marae every year. And um, and then sometimes some of them, me and my cousins just get up and talk about whatever we're doing <laughs> and then we host them for the night. And sometimes some of them will come back to us individually because their projects are relevant to whatever we talked about. So I met up with some students, I think it was last week, and they were like, you know, it's kind of blue skies pitching. What would it look like? I was like, papakainga everywhere. It's all papakainga. <laughs> but they, yeah, they were really interested in that whole idea of, you know, if we take decolonization seriously, what does it mean for our settlement patterns? What does it mean for our land tenure options? What does it mean for our cities and our infrastructure? And these are really good and big questions. <laughs> and I'm not going to pretend to have the answer. But again, I think that I can articulate a process that'll help us get there. 
Tēnā koe, Jade. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, you're so welcome. You can hear much more of Jade's work on her podcast, Indigenous Urbanism. I really recommend you look it up. That wraps up our debut episode of the Good Citizen podcast. Next month, I'll be talking to Auckland urban designer Henry Crothers of Landlab. He's been instrumental in the redesign of Auckland's waterfront over the last decade, and he has a number of projects that are finalists in the World Architecture Festival in November. Thank you, though, for listening to Good Citizen, and thanks again to Britomart, the hub for good citizens at the heart of downtown waterfront Auckland, for supporting this podcast. I'm Jeremy Hansen. Matewa. for lover i'm madeline chapman editor at the spin-off if you have the means consider supporting our high quality journalism by becoming a spin-off member sign up now at the spinoff.co.nz slash donate kia ora e te iwi te ahe butler here podcast manager at the spin-off if you enjoy listening to our podcasts consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at the spinoff.co.nz slash donate The Spin-Off Podcast Network.